This is the Sleeper Hold Podcast. Sleeper Hole Podcast debut episode where there is no disqualifications on the topics and falls count anywhere. I'm your host, Priest, and just a little quick note about me so we can have some rapport starting here. I have been around the ropes of wrestling as a crew member, sound and media technician, a manager, and even an owner. Wrestling has always had a spot in my life for as far back as I can remember, from seeing the scary dead man approach the toll of the bells to the coolest guy who wore pink and gave one lucky kid his sunglasses. This is a love of mine. Now, in case you can't tell by the name of this podcast, our focus is wrestling, and more than likely, we'll eventually branch out to other combat-based entertainment, such as boxing or MMA. Now, one thing I've always been told is that if you're going to talk about the present, you need to know what happened in the past. I know, it's boring history for some. I'm not even a fan of discussing anything revolving around history, but I think it's a good start since, let's face it, not all of us grew up in the same generations and saw the various changes of wrestling history. So I'm going to open up with the first series, otherwise called The Eras. So without further ado, let's grapple with the first topic of this episode, World Wrestling Federation's Golden Age of Wrestling. Before 1982, wrestling was all about territories. Each territory had its widespread region, if you will, to recruit talent, host shows on air, and make money. The territory owners respected each other and would sometimes share talent all around to make the territories and their talent shine. But there was never a thought of invasion. It was respect. All of this faced a sudden change due to one young man who had a vision, had the drive, and arguably had no respect for the tradition of what wrestling in itself had already established. That man was Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Now it's said that Vince Jr. had always tried to encourage for his father to expand out of his territory and become the top company in the country. He even tried to encourage and push his dad to go from local television to national TV, just so they would be seen everywhere and not just in the New York area. During this time, Vince Jr. had already founded Titan Sports Incorporated, pretty much a bodybuilding company. In 1982, he bought his father's company and the dawn of the World Wrestling Federation and the invasion, if you will, had begun. He began filming the shows so they could be aired across the country on national television, which, to be frank, it royally pissed off many of the other territories. And I can't say that I blame them, though. Look at it like this. If your company was the only one of its kind that ran from Missouri to Illinois to Wisconsin and Iowa, and you had all the rights to that area when it comes to promotions, television shows, and whatnot, 
you'd be relatively pissed off too if some 37-year-old man from the East Coast was trying to take over your business profits by making his own company just like yours, but in a completely different region, to be aired all over national television, thus drawing attention away from all your hard work and success. You may call me crazy, but I'd be royally ticked off too. What made this worse is that this tactic caused many of the local talent from all the territories to jump ship and sign up with Vince McMahon Jr. Instead, like it or not, this clever tactic played on Vince's part, and to me, is also the first sign of companies going from respectful to what many independent feds now have the mentality of, which is that this is a cutthroat business. This is the time where some of the most memorable names that even still are dropped today come to shine, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking names like Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Jimmy Superfly Snooka, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and the Iron Sheik, just to give you a, a sample. Now, remember that these people were at the peak of their performance. And many of these men, like Hulk Hogan, were seen as larger-than-life powerhouses. It seemed that Vince himself had tried to tie his bodybuilders of Titan Sports Incorporated to the superstars of the World Wrestling Federation. As his success grew from being a national show to every person's home, Vince was now able to recruit other big names to his list. I mean, we're talking, for example, Randy. Oh yeah, Macho Man Savage, Jake the Snake Roberts, the Honky Tonk Man, the British Bulldogs, and of course my favorite team from then, the Hart Foundation. Vince's next obstacle was taking his shows from being on television to traveling across the nation for live events. Now, Vince didn't have the money to start this right away. And his ticked-off competition that we mentioned earlier, all those other territories, they were ready to strike back with what they felt would be the fatal blow against this newly formed World Wrestling Federation. In 1983, NWA launched their supercard known as Starcade on television. This show, Starcade, it had listed many of the greats from each territory into one massive battle. Where this should have set off Vince and made him have a huge setback, it seemed like it inspired him and served only to be a huge catalyst. Putting all his chips on the table, Vince Jr. prepared for what he was going to call the Super Bowl of sports entertainment. There would be celebrities, there would be music, there would be epic matches after epic matches. And come 1985... WrestleMania was born. Their main events for WrestleMania 1 was pitting Roddy Roddy Piper against Paul Ornoff. Pardon me if I got the name wrong, Paul. But they were going to be tagged up against Hulk Hogan and the A-team celebrity, Mr. T. If that wasn't appealing enough, ladies and gentlemen, they even had boxing's greatest, Muhammad Ali, as a special guest referee. 
needless to say, as any wrestling fan knows, WrestleMania was a huge success. So now Vince was able to live the next step of his dream and travel across North America. He was seen as invading territories and a threat to all past traditions of wrestling. This disgust, though, it never stopped him. And again, if you ask me, it seems like it was just more fuel added to the fire within him and wanting to prove that he was right all along and that he was the best company. Vince truly felt that the old ways were a dying tradition that was going to force sports entertainment to become extinct. In some light, I can understand where Vince was coming from back then, but I also have to respect and understand how each owner of each territory felt when they were invaded, if you will, and offered to be bought out. Some took it. Others, in their own ways, would turn down the offers. But needless to say, Vince Jr. was a force to be reckoned with. The following year, Vince Jr. would strike gold yet again. He had his next supercard of WrestleMania, which is WrestleMania 2, to do something that was never done before, and honestly, it has not been replicated since. WrestleMania 2 was hosted in three separate locations. He was located in Uniondale, New York, Chicago, Illinois, and Los Angeles, California. Each show had their own main event, but would also have the other areas being aired as well, just as it would be for the people watching it on TV at home. No one would miss a beat, but the fans all across the nation would have a chance to see some of their favorite superstars. Very impressive tactic by Vince. Of course, very successful as we know. Honestly, I would love to see them pull this done again. I think it's madly genius, except for unfortunately, I don't ever see it happening. However, though, this in itself not only shows the kind of visionary that Vince Jr. is, but honestly, the set of cojones the man has to do something so risky and so damnly in the face of all the other territory owners. The following year, though, is often seen as the most memorable of WrestleMania in history. WrestleMania three had the main event set as Hulk Hogan would take on Andre the Giant. I love hearing stories about Andre. And he is such an intimidating man physically, if you were to look at the pictures of him. But then you hear the stories that he's like a, a giant teddy bear. He has a heart of gold. Now, during this match, Andre wasn't feeling so well. His health was not as well as it used to be. And if you watch the footage, like on the WWE Network, you can notice that he is not 100%. But he still put on a hell of a show, guys. The match was historic because Hogan was the first man to lift and slam Andre onto the mat. Now, here's the kicker. I've done some research on this, and I've watched a few little video interviews and whatnot. And it's been kind of noted on there that this was never planned. It was a decision that was made in the ring. And from what I understand, it was made by Andre himself. I would love to, you know, one day hopefully interview Hulk Hogan or something like that and get more of an in-depth about this match because it's phenomenal. But you talk about a man with a heart of gold. 
being one of the most intimidating figures in the ring and still wanting to do something like that in his condition just to get the fans to go bananas, Andre will always be one of the best. Andre would feud with Hulk Hogan for a little longer before changing his focus elsewhere in history. Unfortunately, though, Andre's health would start to steadily take a turn for the worse until he would leave us on January 22, 1993. Vince Jr. had established a powerhouse that was only beginning to see its true rise to the top. However, little did Vince know that alongside with the fed up territories, one man would try to join the ranks of the wrestling world come 1988. All right, Central Illinois, listen up. Pinfall Wrestling Association, they are going to be having their second annual Toga Memorial Tournament on Saturday, April 25th, 2015 at Lanfear High School in Springfield, Illinois. That is 1300 North 11th Street. The doors open at 6.30. The show starts at 7. Tickets are going to be from $10 for adults. Kids 6 to 12 is $6. Any child 5 and under is free. Not only are you going to have this great tournament, but the tag team champions, Smash and Flash, are challenging all tag teams. You want to get your tickets in advance? Go to Yanni Zeros. They will have them there for you. Let me tell you, I went to last month's show. It was amazing. And I will definitely be seeing you guys there. Again, PWA, second annual Toga Memorial Tournament, Saturday, April 25th, 2015 at Lanfear High School in Springfield, Illinois. See you guys there. Here at the Sleeper Hold Podcast, we strongly believe in helping others. Therefore, we have decided to feature a charity every quarter that we are supporting and invite you to support as well. Following his induction into this year's WWE Hall of Fame, we have decided to make our first charity, Connor's Cure. Head on over to our website at thesleeperhold.com and click on Connor's Cure on the right side of the page for more information. So as you can see, Vince McMahon Jr. had become a powerhouse in the industry and was taking over North America in wrestling. But one competitor would emerge and try to counter out of McMahon's dominance. Our second topic would be known as the birth of World Championship Wrestling. In 1988, 50-year-old Ted Turner unleashed World Championship Wrestling, which was, for lack of a better term, a rebirth of the National Wrestling Alliance, a.k.a. NWA. Offering a time slot on TBS, Turner wanted to compete with McMahon and offer another national promotion for the fans to enjoy. What is commonly teased about is when Turner informed McMahon of this, he told Vince that he was joining the wrestling business. Vince retorted that this is fine, but he is in the sports entertainment business, not the wrestling business. Now, this little bit of information is always joked about. But remember that TBS is headquartered in Georgia, so it's possible that Turner was just speaking with a southern draw. Regardless, McMahon didn't take him serious, and this would end up being, causing McMahon a huge surprise down the road. Turner began to hire big names for his company, one of those being the legendary nature boy Ric Flair. 
With Flair at his side, Turner pretty much continued to have his checkbook open as other great names would soon fill the ranks. Names like Ricky Steamboat, The Road Warriors, Lex Luger, Sid Vicious, and Sting. Now, many of these people would bounce back and forth between Vince and Turner for a while, but there were a few who remained loyal to Turner for the most part, especially Sting. The starting years were not easy for WCW, as much of this fell on their booking staff and gimmicky appearances storylines. They would even have a special appearance of RoboCop at one of their pay-per-views to help promote the newly released movie. The direction that WCW began to move along was more like WWF, but at some cost. It was against what they had promised with the NWA. So, in January of 1991, NWA officially parted ways with WCW. Bye now. During this time, WCW installed Jim Hard, I'm sorry, Jim Hurd as the company's president. Now, he and Ric Flair had many clashes and were not able to come to an agreement with Flair's contract negotiations. Jim Hurd would then fire Ric Flair from the WCW before the July 1991 Great American Bash. Flair was officially stripped of the World Championship Wrestling Heavyweight title in the books, but Flair never officially gave up the belt to the company. Instead, he held it in his possession in what some would call ransom and others would call a justifiable reason. You see, Rick had helped pay for the belt. He gave the WCW a $25,000 deposit. Since WCW had not repaid him for this, yeah, he decided he'd keep the belt until he was repaid and all was settled. Vince McMahon Jr. would see this and take advantage of a huge golden opportunity. McMahon would hire Flair for his company, encouraging him to bring the belt along as part of his gimmick. Eventually, WCW would repay Flair with interest, totaling in about $38,000. WCW would then threaten McMahon and the WWF that they would sue if they aired the belt as the design was property of WCW. They would get their belt back to WCW, and this did damage the early years of the World Championship Wrestling but not as greatly as they were suffering from internal struggles. So while under the creative power of Jim Hurd, the company was pretty much a sinking ship during 1991 and 1992. He had experienced being a business manager, but when it came to the creative power of the wrestling world, Hurd was probably one of the worst choices the company could make. To give you an example, when Flair was working on the renegotiations with WCW, Heard had this crazy idea. He wanted to have Flair drop the Nature Boy persona. That's not all. He wanted him to shave his head and adopt this Roman gladiator gimmick. His excuse was he wanted to have Flair change with the times. Now, anybody who's seen Ric Flair from the past, the present, anything, 
they know that the nature boy, the nature boy is gimmick. That is Ric Flair. He's not just using that name as a fake thing, but he gets in that ring. He is the nature boy. He has that huge, almost white blonde hair and styling and profiling and everything else. There's a reason he's the nature boy and nobody else says. So, you know, back to Hurt, he also wanted to have Flair take a pay cut and not be near the main event position, which is another big thing because back then, Ric Flair was probably one of the most major draws to the company's fan base. People came to see Ric Flair. He was a known, established wrestler all across all the territories, even before Vince had done this whole thing. People knew and loved Flair. you got to make sure you understand that. So Flair had heard all these demands for the renegotiations, and of course he refused them. What's even better, though, is that the WCW committee even backed up Ric Flair. It's said that Kevin Sullivan even remarked sarcastically that once they change Flair completely, they should go to the Yankee Stadium and change Babe Ruth's uniform number. Yeah, that ain't gonna happen. Heard would be accused... Um, let me explain this real quick. He'd be accused of a lot of different things, but the main thing is that he was listed as accusing Flair of holding up the company and making them hostage, even though Flair was trying to be negotiable. Heard pretty much tried to do everything he could to destroy Flair, which in turn would really damage WCW early on. Thankfully, by January of 1992, Flair would see that, you know, he would have his renegotiations finalized and that Heard would be fired having his role taken over by Kip Allen Frey, who later on was also replaced by Bill Watts. Now, Bill Watts, (laughs) he was another mistake for WCW as he made the company continue to plummet in 92. Watts tried to bring the company back to the old 1970s standards, uh, kind of back to the NWA style where... He would do things like making top rope moves illegal, which a lot of their talent, their newer talent, did a lot of top rope techniques. That was their high lives, their high spots, flying elbows and whatnot. He also tried to encourage the company to house shows in rural towns and poor quality arenas. I mean, he was bringing it back to what we have for independent feds. Get us into a warehouse with poor lighting and and aluminum siding and whatnot to where we can only house maybe 100 to 200 people and not arena-sized, where we have now where you can get several hundreds. With the WCW, WCW committee very upset with him over the several reasons like these, Watts would finally resign, and a new name would come along to bring WCW to its highly competitive field against the WWF. And eventually helped dawn what would be dubbed as the Monday Night Wars. Thank you for listening to the Sleeper Hulk Podcast. 
Don't forget to visit our website at thesleeperhold.com to comment on episodes, read our blog, for information about the quarterly charity, and more. See you in two weeks.